Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and this is the Downtime Podcast, where we're going to be taking you deeper than ever into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. Before we get stuck into this week's episode, just a quick thank you to our supporting partner We Are One Composites and to let you know about an awesome giveaway. We Are One Composites are back again supporting the podcast this month. I'm always stoked to talk about these wheels because they really are very, very good. They're a well-engineered product designed by people who really understand the demands of riding and what makes for incredible performance and ride feel. Back that up with an industry-leading attention to detail in the process, and that means the quality of the product is second to none, and you've got some winning wheels right there. For the month of May, downtime listeners get a very generous 15% off any We Are One wheel, rim, order package, bar and stem by using the code DOWNTIMEMAY2023. That's DOWNTIMEMAY2023, all one word with a capital D and a capital M. You'll find that code in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. And don't forget, you need to enter it at the very final stage of the checkout process in order for it to work. That's the confirm order page at weareonecomposites.com. It's listener survey time again, and this year Magura have been kind enough to give us three sets of my favourite brakes, the awesome MT7 Pros, to give away. So to be in with a chance of winning some, all you need to do is to head to downtimepodcast.com for such survey and fill in this year's listener survey. It's super simple to do, and it's only going to take you a couple of minutes. It's a massive help to me to find out more about you lovely lot too. So head over to downtimepodcast.com for such survey, and we'll be choosing the winners of three sets of Magura MT7 Pro brakes at random on Thursday the 8th of June. If you find the podcast provides you some value, maybe you've learned something that's helped your riding or your fitness, maybe it's got you stoked to go riding or to come back from an injury, or maybe it's just something to pass the time when you can't be riding your bike, then it would be awesome if you're able to do a little something in return to help the podcast continue and improve by setting up a small, regular donation via my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Big thank you to all the new patrons who've signed up in the last week. That's Lucifer, Rooks, Jeremy Fonseca, Nick, Blaze Kelly, Colin Gibbs, Stephen Watson, Sam Bailey, and Nick Berriford. Also, if you want to represent the podcast, there's still downtime t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hoodies available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. If you want a little bit more downtime in your life, you can join my newsletter where I'll provide you with a bit of behind the scenes info on the podcast, interesting bits and pieces from around the mountain bike world, some mini reviews of products that I've been using and like, partner offers and more. You can do that over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. Otherwise, don't forget to follow the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. You can do that by hitting that button in your podcast app right now or there's buttons for all the major platforms to help you over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can either listen to today's episode right here or now if you prefer to watch it, you can do that over on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash at Downtime Podcast. I'll also stick a link to the video in the show notes over on my website, downtimepodcast.com. All right, Evan Turpin is a successful mountain bike racer and shop mechanic who decided that he wanted to build his own bike. Not content with what was on offer, Evan set out to build a high pivot steel bike that he felt would outperform the competition. We talk about how he approached the task of building his own bike, hear how he used YouTube to learn the necessary skills and how the development has progressed from the first prototype to today. We also chat about Evan supporting the Beyond Racing team this year with pretty exciting prototype downhill bikes from his brand Contra Bikes. So without further ado, here's Evan Turpin. Evan Turpin, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? That's good. Just Real busy trying to uh, catch up with everything. <laughs> yeah, and fair play. Let, we should let the listeners know what time it is in the morning for you because you were you've been pretty committed for this episode. Yeah, it's five a.m. here in uh, Aptos, California. 
but I just wanted it to be on a time that would work for you and still be able to get to the Sea Otter Classic in time to uh, do events today. So good stuff, man. Yeah, impressive commitment. Well, let's let's wind the clock back and find a bit out about you and your background before we dig into bike design, which clearly we're going to get into pretty heavily. Um, tell us a bit about how mountain biking came into your life in the first place. Cause I think you were kind of, you, you had a mountain bike, but skateboarding was a bit more your thing early doors. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I started off, uh, basically I was, I was kind of a skateboard little punk kid or whatever, and was skateboarding before school. And that was, that was what I would do just skateboard to school skateboard outside school until we had to go. Um, and this one day, uh, Jamie Goldman, who basically, uh, went on to ride for Santa Cruz syndicate and stuff. He, he came, uh, wheeling down the road on a Santa Cruz bullet. (laughs) And this was like back, this is like when I was 15. So I think this is maybe like 2000 or 2001. And I was just like, wow, that, that looks crazy. Like this, this mountain bike with all the suspension. And I asked him if I could try it out and I rode it around and I went, I like rode over a speed bump and I was just like, Oh my God, you can't even feel the speed bump. This is, this is insane. (laughs) And, and like that day basically went home, dusted off the Christmas present my parents got for me like years before, which was a rigid Cannondale, I don't know, CAD three hardtail with like cantilever brakes and just started mountain biking and and started saving because I need I wanted it I wanted a bullet a Santa Cruz bullet but um, never could save up enough money for that so ended up just getting like some specialized big hit thing for a couple thousand bucks and uh, started racing downhill locally they used to have a race series um, near here and uh, just kind of went went from there went in transitioned into racing and uh, yeah stuck with mountain bikes the whole rest of my life so far (laughs) nice yeah we'll talk a bit more about the racing side but i want to just pick into the kind of engineering side of things as well was that influence from your father is that right is he a civil engineer he is a civil engineer that so definitely he's 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 an engineer so he's very detailed um and i think when i was younger i uh I definitely looked up to how organized and how like professional he was with, with, um, just any project like around the house and stuff. He being a civil engineer, we didn't, he didn't necessarily do the same kind of hands-on stuff, like using a manual mill and lathes and things like that. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it kind of, he definitely helped with that mindset, but, um, I think the, engineering aspect of it just came from an interest in wanting to go faster on a bike. And like, that was, you're always trying to, you know, change parts on your bike and experience something, uh, upgrade your bike or whatever. And so, um, I was always just from a young age, really interested in that stuff and would make drawings like of bikes and everything. And, um, yeah, just kind of self self taught, I guess. So, Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And that, yeah, that, that hunger to kind of make the bike faster obviously worked like your progression through racing was super impressive, right? Just give us a bit of background on how far you went with racing. Cause you, you went as basically as far as you can go. Huh? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I never made it truly as a professional as far as like making a living doing it, but 
Um, I progressed pretty quickly because all I did was ride my bike uh, when I first got into it. And um, so from when I started riding bikes and racing locally, like, you know, as like a junior uh, kind of junior beginner, so to speak, um, within I think it was within like three years or so. I had already progressed to be racing at a semi-pro level, which was a category they used to uh-huh. have here. And then kind of won stuff, like kind of didn't win everything that I could win. But I, I mean, at the end of the year as a semi-pro, I won national champs in Mammoth by like something like 14 seconds and Whoa. would have placed like top 15 in pro. And so it was like, yeah, yeah. it's time to move up to pro. And then... um just kept kept progressing and uh like the following year i got on the podium at national champs which was kind of crazy and then um the year after that i had good enough results to be selected for worlds uh to race downhill at uh in rotorua new zealand so that was 2006 so 06 yeah yeah so that was kind of to to be honest like that was kind of like the highlight of my, my downhill racing career. It kind of sucks that it was so long ago, but, um, but yeah, to race like world championships and for it to be within five years after starting to ride mountain bikes was like pretty amazing for me. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely, um, progressed quickly and then, uh, but it never, again, it never went past, like I never was very good at the, uh, the marketing yourself side of it and getting sponsors and, um, yeah, I was just more focused on doing my own thing and yeah. <laughs> and it, it starts to hint at your, uh, your natural ability to go all in at something. You went as far as I think you finished school kind of early to focus on racing. Is that, yeah. is that right? So I, um, I actually, like I was terrible student i um it wasn't that i wasn't smart or able to do stuff it was just i literally all i wanted to do was ride my mountain bike and like build trails and race and Uh i would just completely i would pretty much just sleep in my classes to be honest like because i was just tired from (laughs) and and i'm sure my parents hated that uh but and they saw that that i just didn't care so um I took the California high school proficiency exam, I think in my second year in high school and got out of high school early. And the whole um, mm-hmm. stipulation for my parents was that I had to go to the community college. So they're like, oh, we're just like fast forwarding him into, you know, getting a degree, like going to a, like I wanted to go or I, th- if I was going to go anywhere, it was going to be Cal Poly um, down in San Luis Obispo, which is like a really good engineering school. And they actually have like a bike program. Uh, they made a bike for the NAB show, the North American Handmade Bike Show. That was actually like a steel V10 uh, with all this cool stuff. So it would have been uh, cool to do that. But again, I was just focused on racing. So pretty much just like flunking out of all of my classes. And they kind of just realized it wasn't working. And they're like, yeah, you just you're just going to have to start working, you know, <laughs> so but you did at at that community college you did some sort of like was it a 3d design module or something learning how to use that that side yeah that was like one of the classes that was kind of hilarious because i do tell people that story that i took a pro it was called pro engineer which is now i think creo parametric so that's like a 3d Mm -hmm. 
design. It's actually what I think Fox and Santa Cruz use is Creo Parametric. And I took this class. You're supposed to be designing or not designing stuff. You're supposed to be doing these like, you know, uh, making triangles and whatever. And instead I was... (laughs) designing a open bath fork cartridge for a RockShox boxer. <laughs> That's actually what I raced semi-pro national champs on was a fork cartridge that I uh, made or, well, first of all, designed in this class. I got a D in the class, so not passing. Um, <laughs> but we went and actually, um, I knew the guys at Gamut USA, so like Juan and Mateo, and um, they for people that don't know Gamut, because it does go back a ways, they made chain guides and stuff and uh, eventually mm-hmm. went into handlebars and pedals and stems. But um, they had a CNC machine in their garage in like near San Jose. And we um, made this thing in like one day. Like his dad programmed the little valve, like the, the uh, pistons or whatever. And then we're learning how to use like a lathe and made this damper and, and uh, raced on it. And, uh, yeah, it was cause at the time the, the RockShox boxer had basically 1970s technology. It was like, it was called a damping rod fork, which is like what is used in like a Harley Davidson. Maybe, you know, uh-huh. it's not, it's not good suspension. They've obviously come a long way now, but back then they were terrible. So yeah, that was, I guess my first like bike thing that I actually made real instead of just drawing pictures, which was really cool. Yeah, and went and won on it, right? Yeah, that was the, that was the one won by a big chunk. Yeah, I remember. So one of the issues though was that I didn't like, I didn't, I wasn't an engineer. I didn't understand that you needed to have like anodizing on raw aluminum, especially in a damper. So um, the oil would get really like you obviously would have wear and you'd have like oxidation and stuff that would yeah. contaminate your oil. So I remember I was doing a like a fork service in my hotel room in mammoth like which isn't great like you don't want to spill oil everywhere um i luckily i didn't you know spill oil all over the carpet but um yeah you basically had to like change the oil like every few days because it would just get so dirty from all the wear and tear you know it wasn't i didn't know taller i had no idea what i was doing but i knew what i wanted it to feel like i knew a general idea of um how like high-end motocross dampers were configured, mm. how that worked. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a fun, fun first project for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. First dip of the toe into the water. Yeah. So like you said, you, you struggled, I guess, with the marketing of yourself and that whole like pro rider career never materialized. Which direction did you go in from a career perspective at that point? Um. So when, when I kind of, I don't know. You know, it, it was always, you would end up, I would always end up working as like a bike mechanic in the winters. And, um, cause that was like the only thing that I was good at, or at least I thought I was good at. Um, and, uh, at one point I kind of, uh, basically, I, a direction that I ended up going that, that I thought was quite cool was, um, going and working on, basically developing a bike park up in the Sierras. So up in the Sierra mountains, mm-hmm. um, at a ski resort called China peak. And, um, that came about kind of randomly. And, uh, I spent a couple summers up there 
building trails and helping host events. I actually put on or started the China Peak Enduro, which is part of the California Enduro series. Um, it's actually one of the stops that they've had like every year for, I think it's like going on seven or eight years. Um, but that was, that was, that was also a big learning experience too. had timing issues and stuff. Cause none of that was figured out with Enduro and it was hard to do, but, um, yeah. So I went down this path of like trying to help build a, a, a riding, uh, spot, like a, a lift access riding, um, zone but it, it was difficult because we had like no budget they're super super small um so i did that and then uh i actually ended up meeting my now wife up there margo um which was pretty interesting uh and then uh went on to work as basically a bike mechanic again um on top of trying to race enduro races that was another thing that i got interested in and did some EWS races, thought I was going to become a pro there. Actually was able to get offers for support, like a financial okay. support, not enough to live off of or anything, but, um, which uh-huh. was interesting, but, uh, yeah, just mostly just worked as a bike mechanic. So I've always seen what's, what's bad with bikes. Um, what's not durable, what, what's good with bikes obviously as well. Um, so Yeah just working on bikes almost my whole life and then eventually a super good background though right if you're going to design your own spending time hands-on with so many other bikes is a really good start like you say learning what's good and what's bad yeah for sure i mean i it wasn't like i was riding every customer's bike that comes in i mean you do test ride bikes and stuff um and for a short while i was also doing some reviews for vital mtb like a long time ago okay um was reviewing products and stuff just for just for fun and and uh that was that was something that i really enjoyed was like we did the uh like a sort of a field test thing or well it's called the test sessions i think and got to ride like eight different enduro bikes or something like that over uh, a week and um just seeing like how like the, it was at the time when 29ers were just like starting to come into the into the mix. And um, it was just really interesting riding all the different bikes and trying to figure out what was awesome and what wasn't. And yeah, but kind of just honestly, just kind of floated through life trying to figure out what <laughs> what I wanted to do and eventually settled on this bike thing. So, yeah. So how do we get from bike mechanic then to going all in and having a go at starting your own bike brand. Tell us a bit about the background. Yeah. So I'd always been like over the last probably maybe 10 plus years, I'd always been playing around in the uh, linkage design, which is a, um, a little software you can get that basically, uh, you can analyze suspension designs. I'm, I'm sure some people use that or know about it. Um, but that was yeah. a simple way to start to look at bikes that I had been riding and try to figure out why they felt a certain way and like what, you know, yeah. if I liked something about a bike or I didn't like something, what, what, what was that actually, uh, when you're looking on a graph or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I'd always been interested in that and I'd always been playing around, like trying to design my own kinematics, my own linkages and stuff and achieve something, um, 
but I never really, like it never really went any further than that. And it took working at a bike shop for just working at bike shops for, for too long to the point where I was just kind of, I wasn't happy. I was quite frustrated, not with the shop that I was working at, but just, I wasn't really going anywhere, you know, like, um, I wasn't able to really progress as a professional, as like a, as a career. And, uh, yeah, just one day I met my, uh, now wife for, for lunch at this like sandwich shop, um, in the middle of the workday. And one of my friends, uh, or coworkers that I'd worked with before at a bike shop was there and was like, had just started a job working like in the engineering department at Fox racing shocks. Cause they were right around the corner. And I literally blurted out at him, like after he said it, you know, you're supposed to be like, oh, congrats. And I was like, looks like everybody has my dream job, but me. And I was just so everybody was just like, oh, geez, what the heck is this guy doing? (laughs) Like I was just I kind of cracked and was just like, oh, my God, dude, like I need to do something. And I basically just decided soon after that, because it was kind of like a wake up call that I'm not happy um, that. I've always wanted to make bikes and I'm going to, I'm just going to do it. Like I'm going to make, I'm going to make a bike. And I didn't, I don't necessarily, I don't know if I thought at that moment that I was going to actually try to turn it into a company, but it, I needed to do something different. Um, so yeah, at that, at that moment, then I ended up, uh, just like figuring out how am I going to do this? How am I going to be able to quit my job? And so I went to like the bank and took out a personal loan to try to cover living expenses for a little while and have some money to create a prototype. And, um, yeah, it just kind of started there. And that was, I think the end of towards the end of 2019. So it was like kind of interesting. I think it was like October. Yeah. was like my last day probably at the bike shop. And then, uh, just before COVID. Yeah. Just before COVID. (laughs) And I also, I think a lot of the time spent to, Um, I had a broken kneecap from a bike race. So I hit a tree racing an enduro race, um, with like a little thin knee pad. I think it was like a G, a G form knee pad, which I'm sure they have thicker pads now, but the ones that I had then were quite thin and, uh, just broke my kneecap. Luckily it wasn't like straight down the middle, but so I was off the bike and didn't know if I would be even, I mean, that might've been, I, I can't remember exactly when that happened, but, um, yeah, I was definitely not back to riding for quite a while. So it helped, it, it helped designing stuff during that time period. It helped keep yeah, me plenty of time on busy. Your <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So you've quit work. You've managed to get some money from the bank. Where do you start with the bike? Cause you've got a little bit of experience by the sounds of it in some sort of CNC stuff, some design, a little bit of 3d CAD background, but not a huge amount of experience. Where do we go from here? Yeah. So the first thing, obviously like the easiest thing for me was to focus on the kinematics and using linkage design to try to figure out, uh, like a direction to go with the bike. And I didn't want to just make a bike that is the same as everything else. And it's not that you can't make a good bike using like a a normal linkage design or whatever, but it was, I was kind of searching. I like had this list, like this checklist of, I want it to do this. I want 
it to do this. I want to just the little kind of dream checklist of, of what I want in a bike. Yeah. And so it started with trying to figure out uh, like linkage designs and what direction to go. And at the time, uh, my buddy, I don't know if I should, I guess he's not going to get in trouble or anything, but Kieran, Kieran McKinnon is like a, a good friend of mine. And he is actually okay. kind of, I think you've had him on the podcast before. Yeah. yeah and he, he's I at have, Santa yeah. Cruz and he's doing a lot of um, development on bikes and testing and stuff. And, and uh, at the time they had, they always had a lot of bikes at Santa Cruz, like different bikes. And I, I got to test ride one of their bikes from the engineering department, which was a, um, common Sol supreme sx which was like a yeah uh-huh. like a free ride bike to be honest um but a high pivot with an idler and i went on a ride i had borrowed it for a while and um was blown away by how smooth it was in rough sections i was like this is this feels better than any downhill bike i've ever ridden through rough sections there were tons of other problems with that bike um and things that I didn't like, things that I learned from it, like the the drag from the small idler, like inefficient pedaling, uh, really high brake squat, which I didn't like. So based okay. going into it uh, for people that don't know, like just the influence of like your brake torque on the swing arm on a high pivot bike, if it's a high single pivot, um, it can basically almost create like violent squatting into the travel. So that was really something I, I didn't like. Um, and the pedaling, obviously I didn't like, but I loved how it was in the rough. Um, and that was something that really stuck in my mind was like, wow, this is, this is really very different and quite cool. And that was obviously, I think at the time common had kind of been dominating the world cup downhill using their high pivot bike and everybody was, that was kind of the new hot thing that was going to happen. But, um, yeah, there wasn't much of anything on the market at the time. I think forbidden was maybe kind of the first major high pivot bike that was like accepted by the masses. So, so that definitely, I don't think that that swayed my decision to go towards a high pivot bike, but, um, it definitely, didn't hurt it. It seemed like people were really interested in it, but yeah, again, I was creating the bike for the, my dream bike, not necessarily like, Oh, what does the customer want? Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, I've, I learned that I could do some really cool stuff with a high pivot. You just have, um, some kinematics you can achieve that you can't with a low pivot, or at least I don't think you can with a a low pivot or normal, um, drivetrain. So from there, uh, thought that I needed since I didn't really know how to do 3d design proficiently. It'd been a long time. I thought I needed to hire somebody like a a friend who was, uh, they were, they were an industrial designer. And so they had access to SolidWorks, and I had gave them the kind of kinematics and the, the pivot locations. And, uh, he started working on trying to create it and make it into a bike. But at the same time, he wasn't really, um, super experienced with like doing that. And so it was taking, taking a while. I didn't have like a budget to go pay some, you know, an actual design engineer to, to do this thing. So he was working on it and progress was kind of slow. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to just see if I can get like a student version of 
Creo Parametric because I, which was the same as Pro Engineer because I had used it in the past, and so I somehow got a student version of Creo Parametric, taught myself how to use it in about like a week or two, watching like YouTube videos, like a whole series, and then started designing stuff and and got to a point where. I was like, yeah, I can do, I can do this. Like I can make this work. And, um, yeah. And, uh, actually to, to rewind back a a tiny amount too. Well, I guess it wouldn't be rewinding back, but, um, from there I was, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to design this thing, but then how am I going to make it? And that was, that was the other big thing was I got a bike designed and then it was like, I don't have the skills to make this yet. So, uh, I, lo- I then looked at outsourcing that. I actually talked with Brent Foes at, F- at Foes, uh, racing down in Southern yeah. California. And at the time, I think he quoted me something like, like 15 grand to make five frames, but I would have to provide all the CNC machine parts, which is like a, a huge expense. And I'm like, I can't yeah. afford, I can't, like at the time I was like, oh my God, that's so much money. Now I'm like, oh, I would have done that in a heartbeat. Like to have somebody <laughs> that good make me five frames for that amount. Like it sounds like a huge amount of money, which it, for, for five bike frames. But, um, and on top of that, you know, all, obviously all the CNC parts would have been probably in the range of seven grand to be made here, which is what yeah. I wanted to do. I didn't want to, um, order stuff from overseas. I wanted to have a, a relationship with the person making it and, and know, be able to communicate well. Um, so yeah, that kind of ended up being a no go. I was like, okay, well now I'm going to have to figure out how to make this. And I felt kind of stuck because I didn't have like, I didn't have any machinery. I didn't have the experience. And luckily, uh, I don't know, through probably just talking, um, about it, what I was trying to do. Um, this guy Bjorn, who he basically, uh, he's an engineer, he's a mechanical engineer and also a huge like mountain biker. Like he's into downhill racing and all this stuff. He was like, Hey, you know, like we have this shop down in Watsonville and we've got some tools and like, you're welcome to come in and like, check it out and, and try like, see if, you know, if you need a space to, to try to make bike or make parts, like you can, you can use the shop. And so, um, I, I kind of just decided, I'm like, okay, well I need to learn how to do this stuff. I might as well hit him up. So, so I went and checked out the shop and he showed me, you know, how to use a lathe and how to use his mill that he had. Uh, and, basically really, you know, I was probably really cautious at first (laughs) and, uh, he realized I wasn't going to rip my arm off and was just like, cool. All right. Yeah. So you can use the shop if you want. And so that, so that was huge. Cause if anybody has ever looked into getting like manual mill or a lathe, like obviously you can, you can probably get some used ones for not that expensive, but it's more having the space and, and bigger thing is like transporting it to get it there. Cause a lot of these things are so heavy, you know, a, yeah. a Bridgeport mill is I think well over a couple thousand pounds. So it has to be like fork trucked and like forklifted in and you have to have uh 220 or whatever you have to have, you know, the electricity for it and everything. So, um, 
yeah, just started working on, you know, again, watching like YouTube videos of how to miter bike frames and watching anything and everything I could to try to teach myself how to make a bike. And, uh, awesome. Yeah. Just went from there. <laughs> yeah. What was the trickiest part then of getting that first prototype together? Uh, I mean, everything was hard, but, um, <laughs> I think for me, it was like certain machine parts that I designed. Cause I, I was designing stuff, um, in 3d, but I didn't have an understanding of like what it meant to actually make that. So I tried, yeah, okay. I tried to design stuff as simple as I could, but some of the things that I had designed had like crazy tolerance stackups where like all these things had to be absolutely perfect. Otherwise it wouldn't work. So on the first bike that I made, which was a high pivot, a high single pivot with a linkage and it was actually concentric part of the linkage was concentric to the bottom bracket. So I created, uh -huh. I was creating this whole like bottom bracket shell that was like a huge axle that was actually press fit into the frame. Uh, you like threaded it together almost like those, I don't know, Praxis Works I think makes a bottom bracket for like BB30 bikes or something that you can like thread together and then it press fits in. And so like mm -hmm. that thing I think took me like two days making this part because there were so many steps to to make it like I bought like taps from the UK because like you couldn't you couldn't they call it the UK anymore I don't know what to, I don't know what to ever call yeah, okay. yeah. and <laughs> because it's yeah. like English you know English bottom bracket taps so I was like I have to be able to tap this yeah. and just making that complex part was probably one of the most nerve-wracking things and then also I kind of I did everything like the hard way on the first bike. Um, just all the steel parts that were um, like plate parts instead of getting them laser cut, which is what I now do. I literally was cutting everything out with a jigsaw, like from a template. And uh -huh. uh, the, the first bike had these like huge, um, it needed these huge gussets um, to keep the frame from basically spreading apart. Cause I had overlooked, I didn't really understand, um, like, uh, FEA or anything. And so my buddy kind of pointed out, okay. my buddy pointed out that I just explain FEA quickly for yeah. people that might not be familiar with the acronym. So finite element analysis, which basically you take a 3d design and it, you know, virtually you basically can, uh, stress it in a way, however you, you define the way that you're stressing it. So you can apply a load and see whether or not the material is going to hold up, at least if you um, understand mm -hmm. things correctly. And I just had no understanding of, of like what the actual forces are going into a, the pivots of a bike. And luckily on the newer linkage design, they have a professional version. You can actually um, quite easily put a spring rate on the bike and bottom the bike out virtually. And you can see where all the forces go and how they are. And that was really okay. a big yeah. part was like looking at these forces and how they go into the bike and being like, is that going, is that going to work or is that going to try to break the bike apart? And so once you yeah. know what those forces are roughly, you could, the way I was doing it originally was just uh, looking at the directions of those forces, precisely getting the, 
the the force and the direction and then like just kind of like holding a frame in virtual space and loading it in those directions. So it wasn't necessarily the most accurate way to do it, but it gave me a good starting point. And yeah, the, yeah. the, the first bike would have for sure, like over time, it would have hundred percent failed from like hard bottom outs and stuff. And so instead I ended up putting these like huge, it added like 500 grams to the frame to put these huge gussets that basically tied in the main pivot to the shock mount. So those two things were trying to pull apart and now it was just yeah. a tensioned piece and basically it was completely fine after that. But making those things, you know, cutting out these huge plates, precisely bending them, like literally just bending them in a vice, like with a, with a yeah. hammer <laughs> and then, and then <laughs> drilling out all the holes precisely on a mill, like building a fixture to hold that bent part and then mitering everything. Like, I guess that was quite a hard part as well. Um, yeah. and I definitely did everything the hard way. Um, so it's nice to, uh, have progressed a little bit beyond that to where I'm, I'm still doing things the hard way, but it's, it's getting easier <laughs> as you learn, yeah, as you learn for more, sure. uh, for sure. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say. It must've felt amazing though, to get that first one done and build a bike from it. That must've felt so good. Yeah, that was definitely, I can still remember like just the first day, like kind of riding that thing. We wanted to take photos obviously before it got super dirty <laughs> and, uh, but just riding or riding it around and being like, wow, it actually does what I set out to do. Um, but it was also very interesting riding it for the first time on a trail and, and then being like, wow, this is, this is way different. And certain things, you know, you're just like, this is amazing. Like this does stuff way better than anything I've ever ridden before. But then also there were other things where you're like, it's a little weird how this works. Like I've never ridden a bike that feels this way and you couldn't quite mm -hmm. pinpoint whether that was good or bad. And it, so it took a okay. while. Did you find it hard to be objective with it? Like, cause it's your baby. Like, was it hard to criticize it off from the start? Uh, right away. Like, I mean, the thing is the, the first bike kinematically was pretty, was pretty good and actually it's not you know exactly the same as what I'm making now but it it had a lot of similarities and so yeah it probably did take a while of having to ride it so that that kind of honeymoon period wore off and I could start to look at um the bike and pick apart what I didn't like and uh you know obviously the complexity of making the bike that was a kind of a a very complicated bike uh it didn't have mm -hmm. uh it couldn't have like shorter chain stays really than what it was which i know isn't that important now people like really long long chain stay or at least that seems the direction that the industry is going is longer chain stays but i also was like well what if i want to make a small bike like for somebody that's a lot shorter they're not going to want a super mm -hmm. long chain stay and then um it was also you know it was pretty expensive to make because it had some like big machined parts. Like the, one of the lower links was this big one piece of 70, 75, um, aluminum and was quite expensive to make there. Yeah. There were just like a lot of things where it would be hard to actually produce that. And there wasn't like a, uh, 
I felt like there could be a better way of doing it that would be easier to make, lighter weight, stiffer in the right direction. Um, and then a big thing was reducing the unsprung weight because the swing arm on that first bike was massive. It was really heavy. It was like 1,600 grams for just the swing arm. And like to compare that, uh, you know, I've weighed like a Santa Cruz uh trail bike swing arm which obviously isn't the same intended use but i think they're in the like 700 gram range so you know to have that much extra weight that was one thing that i learned is that even if you have a high pivot bike that can take a square edge hit a little bit better because it's moving in the direction of the bump um if you have a huge amount of weight it will actually kind of choke up the suspension because it has to you have to move all that um, weight. So if you think of like holding uh, your arm out, like moving it up and down really fast and then holding your arm out with like a five or 10 pound weight and trying to move it up and down really fast, it's a lot harder to react. So um, yeah, slowing it down and speeding it up is a lot harder, right? That change of direction yeah. of the suspension yeah. is a lot harder. And it adds yeah. like initial har- harshness. And then when you do hit that bump and it's finally your wheel is accelerating upwards, when you hit the top of when it gets to the top of the bump, you you want to try to keep your wheel stuck to the ground as much as you can. And instead, because it has so much yeah. mass, it just continues to go and you have to use your damper. But like you can't add too much damping because then there's harshness. And so, yeah, big a big thing um, from that first bike to to trying to figure out the second bike was for sure reducing unsprung weight. And then um, the braking characteristics on the first bike was also a little uh, interesting because I had like in my mind I thought having it be a hundred percent anti-rise which basically means when you hit your brakes theoretically there's going to be no movement of the suspension from from like your weight shifting forwards um, mm-hmm. I, I, I guess maybe that's a good way of describing it I'm not uh, people might think that that means the suspension is locked out and it's it's not necessarily locked out it's just if you think of a car like braking really hard and how it tilts forwards, it basically just meant that when you hit the brakes, it didn't really want to tilt forwards. Um, it would just stay level. And like other high pivot bikes, if you hit the brakes hard, they actually dive down on the back end yeah. from the brake torque. Um, not all of them, like they're very different now. But uh, so that was actually really weird because. Uh, you would go to break into a section like into a corner or something and you would like move your weight back cause you're expecting it to tilt forwards. And instead the bike would get slacker and you would, and yeah. you're like, Oh wait, okay. I need to stay in the same spot when I'm breaking. It was like really hard. That was, that was something that was like the one thing that, you know, right away I had another friend ride the bike and right away he was like, he was like, the bike's really fast. But he's like, I can't quite wrap my head around like the braking. It's just it's not bad. It's just weird. Like, I don't understand it. And so, yeah, I kind of learned through, I guess, in like power sports, automotive stuff like race cars, you want a little bit of uh, chassis like geometry change when you brake hard because it Mm -hmm. helps your brain to like understand what's going on. And also, obviously, a little bit of it diving into the fork travel is going to help initiate a turn 
it's going to like help the geometry of the bike and weight the front end, um, naturally. So that was another big thing that I focused, uh, on improving. Okay. So yeah, back to the drawing board then for, for some refinements, I guess. And the one, the biggest change it appears was from a linkage driven single pivot to what is basically a a VPP with counter rotating links. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I guess VPP is Santa Cruz. That's their, their, their term, but it, in a, in a sense, um, I mean, that patent's expired now. So, I mean, I don't, yeah, it's kind of similar concept to, you know, how, uh, the Horst link, which used to be specialized for so long is now kind of open source and everybody can do whatever they want with it. And that's why a huge yeah. amount of the bike industry went that way. Cause that's a great linkage or I guess it's a linkage design, but it's quite long links. Um, and so I, it was really funny cause I was trying to make, um, a bike that did everything that I wanted that improved those things, you know, improve the packaging, improve the kinematics, um, and so I went down a whole bunch of routes and, uh, for whatever reason I was like, oh, definitely not like VPP style bike counter rotating links. Cause, cause of, I, I don't know. I just didn't think it could do what I needed it to do. And, uh-huh. and so I went down the route of like a dual, like co-rotating links, like similar to DW link. And I actually was yeah. talking with Hugh McClay who, is at iTrack or he started iTrack, which is basically he patented, um, an idler that's moving. So basically if it's on a linkage member or, um, if it's on like a, a horse link bike and it's mounted on mm-hmm. the chain stay, which isn't physically connected to the rear wheel. So it's moving at like a different arc compared to the rear wheel. Then that falls under his patent. So I was, I was like, I had designed this bike that I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be great, whatever. And then talking with him, he's like, yeah, that, that, you know, I'd gone far along designing this thing. And he's like, that probably infringes on DW link. And so I was like, crap, I have to start over again. Um, and so then I went to like a horse link style. So the FSR or whatever you want to call it. And was able to get a pretty good layout with that. But there were a lot of limitations that, you know, areas where I was running into issues and couldn't quite um, make it the way I wanted it to. And then through chance, I I don't know why I kind of just started playing around with um, VPP style, like counter rotating links and tried to um, create the kinematics that I was shooting for and like just magically was like, wow, this, this could actually work. Like this could actually do everything that I want it to do and package it in a similar way, um, as well. So, and because the patent is expired, I was, I was like, well, I, hopefully I'm not going to get sued by Santa Cruz or something for, for doing this. Um, so yeah, that was, that was, uh, quite a long process of, designing a bike thinking it was like fully baked and like ready to go and then being like oh there's like a major issue here or major issue there can't do that and it was just it took a really long time I can't remember how many hours I was spending on linkage design I mean it was probably months of just 
yeah. moving pivots around and trying to achieve what I wanted to. Um, so yeah, getting to this, what is now basically the design, which is counter rotating links. Um, it's kind of similar to be entirely honest. Like it's not the same layout as a propane, but it's very similar and that the shock is vertically oriented and the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the linkages are in front of the shock. Um, but it's, you know, outside of that, it's actually the kinematics are quite a bit different. Um, they don't make a high pivot pivot version of their, of their bikes yet to the best of my knowledge. Um, and, uh, the other thing too, with that, with this newer layout and what I'm, what I'm selling, uh, is that the forces going into the bike are, are really good. And, um, so the pivot forces, on a normal Santa Cruz bike, like where it has that lower link, uh, and it's, or VPP bike, and it's pushing the shock like forwards into the down tube, you get a really high yeah. load on that lower link, which luckily mm-hmm. it's like a strong area of the bike and you can deal with that. Um, but then you also have like a load on the top tube from that upper link and that's just kind of floating in space. So that that's not as high of a force, but it does require some reinforcement to be strong. So the cool thing about this layout is where you have a shock pushing up into the top tube. And then at the same time, you have a link pulling down on the top tube. So when I started doing FEA on that setup, I learned that it was very strong and didn't need to be reinforced drastically in order to take high loads because they had kind of these opposite uh, loads that countered each other. So, um, and then also the way that it puts force into the, um, lower link where it compresses the shock was actually really good. It was drastically reduced. Um, and it was in not totally in line with the down tube, but if you think of like the stronger direction for a tube is definitely like intention. So it was basically pulling on the down tube and it was a much lower force than anything else. So all of a sudden, the bike didn't need to be drastically overbuilt to, to take a huge impact. Like you could, you know, I don't, I hasn't been to rampage yet, but like you theoretically could go and send a 40 foot drop or something and hopefully not land flat and break your ankles. But like it could, it, I wouldn't be scared of, of, of the bike ripping itself apart, um, from that. So, Yeah. And some secondary benefits of that layout as well, I guess, like you've got plenty of space for a water bottle, which is really important for people now. And you've got that uninterrupted seat tube, which is awesome for getting super long droppers in there. Yeah. And that's also, uh, that was one of my, when I wrote my dream list, like at the very beginning of this, it was like, I want an uninterrupted seat tube, but also having it, uh, actually the seat tubes originate at the bottom bracket, like a, like how hardtails were or whatever, um, whatever your seat tube angle is, is what it is. So on a normal bike, okay, you yeah. have to shift the seat tube forwards, um, from the bottom bracket. And then it's tilted back at a, basically mm-hmm. to create the clearance. Cause now we have like 29 inch wheels. There's no clearance. Everything wants to, that's part of why maybe the industry is going towards longer chain stays too, is just to create more breathing room and the ability to create some geometry that they want. But the Uh thing I didn't like, and the thing a lot of riders didn't like is with that setup, when you have a 
tilted back seat angle because you're trying to like intercept this one point floating in space that is the right point for pedaling that only worked at that perfect height. If you're yep. taller, and if you're different. taller, all of yeah. a sudden you have a a way slacker seat tube angle, and if you're shorter, you have a way steeper seat tube angle, and um, some of these bikes with really slack seat tube angles still had clearance issues. I know there were some issues where bikes were tires were bottoming out on seat tubes still and bottoming out on the seat. So um, the be- part of the benefit of a high pivot bike as well is just the wheel moves up and back quite a bit out of the way. So you can get away with a really long travel dropper post. You can have the seat where you want it and not have it buzz. Um, and even like I just built some small trail bike frames and we put like at a low, a fairly low saddle height um, with a 213 mil dropper dropped all the way. And you could completely. So this is a 370 mil um, length seat tube, which is quite yeah. short. I think that's usually a small or an extra small from most frame or most major yeah. manufacturers. And you could have the seat basically fully slammed and it wouldn't, the tire won't hit at bottom out, which is like for, for shorter riders, uh, even, I mean, people buzz the, the, their tire on their seat all the time. So that was a big benefit as well is just getting extra clearance there. Um, yeah, for shorter riders and and even for taller riders, I guess. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. And why why steel? Was steel always part of your list from the start, or is steel something you decided on along the way? It was definitely something I decided on along the way. So I think originally I was I was pretty set on making the frame out of aluminum because um, I felt that it could be lighter. Which it, I mean, it definitely could if could be lighter if you if you do it right. Um, but part of the issue is that there's not as many, I mean, at least if you're in the U.S. trying to source tubes, there's not as many options for um, mm-hmm. proper tubes made out of aluminum. Like you have kind of one place that has like a few different size chainstay extrusions. Um, I think it's called fairing. And they... Uh, yeah, so there was only like a few tubes that I could choose from, um, or I would have to uh, get something like pay for tooling to get something custom made, which would be quite expensive. Um, and then you also have the issue of you have to heat treat it after welding, which 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 yeah. isn't like obviously it's not an issue for major bike brands. They they do that. But part of the issue with that is that when you go to heat treat something, I mean, basically you're like, you're baking it, um, at a, you're getting it up to a really high temperature and then you, I think you drop it in oil, like you quench it or whatever, which basically puts it in this soft state where you can align everything. You can like stretch, you know, get the frame to be straight. Cause when you weld a frame, um, and I think on an aluminum frame, it's even more, um, exaggerated, you get a lot of distortion because you're, you're completely making everything liquid. And then when those welds cool, it's going to pull in a certain way. And if they haven't welded it in the right way or your miters, uh, like the way that you cope the tubes together isn't tight, you're going to have a lot of, 
geometry change. So I remember hearing stuff through the murmurs through the bike industry, like, oh yeah, there can be like plus or minus like degree and a half on head angle, like between frames and stuff. And you're just like, what the heck? Like, that's a big difference. Like, and what, and I knew on my bike too, like if my pivot locations don't stay very close to what they're supposed to be, the bike's not going to work the way I designed it. So aluminum was like, I went down a route of looking at doing aluminum and I went to, looked at tons of different things. And then I was like, Oh, I'm going to like create lugs and like bond it together and do all this stuff. Cause there'd be no heat and you could, and that's like a, that's a cool thing, but it's very expensive to do. And also like, I didn't necessarily mm-hmm. understand how to bond things together like appropriately. So, um, I kind of felt stuck for a while there and steel, I knew that steel was a little bit more forgiving in certain aspects that, um, it didn't necessarily require heat treatment after welding in order to ride it. So for me, I was like, Oh, that's a plus that I, it's not going to get all warped being heat treated. Um, and then, uh, it looked like there, you know, basically a lot of people, um, in this area, custom frame builders, would have the ability to do the welding. Cause that was the other thing is being able to find somebody that could weld it and know how to weld a bike properly. Um, mm-hmm. and then as I learned more, I learned that, you know, there's massive amounts of tubing available. Um, you have Reynolds, obviously you have, um, fairing, which had a whole bunch of cool, like butted tubing and stuff. And they have like form chain stays and, there's just a lot more available in steel. And also that was an issue because during COVID there was like, you know, that was a concern was like, what if I go down this route and then I can't get, if I go down the aluminum route and I can't get the chain stays that I need, like I can't make a bike. And with steel, it was like, yeah, you can use, you can take like a normal chromoly tube. You can get them in crazy uh, different amounts of wall thicknesses and you can bend and form it and not need to heat treat it immediately. I mean, obviously it would be beneficial if every tube was heat treated before, or it could be beneficial, but the reality is that custom frame builders have been doing it that way for quite a long time and it's, and it's fine and it's strong. And that was the other benefit is learning that, uh, once I had a little bit more understanding of, uh, like the not the chemical properties, but like the structural physical properties of materials. Mm-hmm. Um, steel is just really good for fatigue. So yeah, basically any stress below a certain level, it can basically take infinite amounts of that, like it, infinite times, yeah. infinite cycles. And with aluminum, yeah, aluminum, like basically any amount of stress is taking life off of that frame, no matter how small it is. I mean, granted, it might take forever if you're just touching the frame with your finger or something, but over time, theoretically, that frame will fail from just the accumulation of stress. So that was a, a big thing. And then through kind of a chance meeting, I ended up going to this, uh, party, 
at John Coletti's shop. So people that don't know who he is, he's a custom frame builder in Santa Cruz. He makes high end, like titanium, mostly titanium, um, like road, gravel, cross country bikes. And he also does steel. And so I, I got to see his shop, which is, which is awesome. It's this like work, work, live space. And it's like a dream shop. And, uh, I ended up talking to him probably after a few drinks <laughs> and, and just was like, Hey man, I'm trying to do this. And like, just was kind of like throwing a hail Mary. Like, would you be down to help me, you know, weld this frame? I wasn't asking for him to make the frame, but, and so that's kind of where it came about as I needed to figure out a way locally to make the bikes. And then also just, with steel, it was more the availability of tubing, the ability to form it, not needing to heat treat it, um, and just being a way that I, I could do it and I could make these here. So, um, yeah. yeah, and that's that's kind of why I ended up on that. And I've actually, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that there's a certain, I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's this magical material and it is it is a it's a great material the cool the cool thing about it is it's quite stiff in a more compact package so when people look at a frame and they're like oh those tubes are so small yeah you're like yeah but it's that material is three times as stiff as aluminum like or generally yeah. around there so my bike only has three quarter inch diameter chain stays and seat stays and everybody looks at it and is like wow that back end's got to be super flexy or whatever and it's not because it's it's plenty it's way stiffer if you made that same chain stay in aluminum even in like a a decent wall thickness yeah they would be completely flimsy um but so that was a big benefit is just creating more clearances as well with steel um giving mm -hmm. you more room like having smaller tubes gives you more room for everything um which is really nice. Uh, any frame designer will tell you that they struggle to have clearances. You know, I guess maybe it's not so difficult in carbon because you can just make whatever shape you want. But <laughs> for the most part, yeah, true. But you you've paired that steel frame in all the builds I've seen anyway with We Are One's carbon wheels, which is the same direction I've gone. I, I ride a steel bike with We Are One wheels on. Is there a reason that you chose that product specifically to kind of go with the bike? Yeah, I mean, uh, a big part of it is just like I really like what they're doing up there in Kamloops. Like, I think okay. Dustin at uh, We Are One is like pretty awesome dude, <laughs> and like it's cool that they're they're like we can make we can make these carbon wheels here and do them better than anybody else. And I truly, I truly feel like. Like I, I bought a set of their wheels, um, for like my sh show, show bike, like one of the bikes that I made for sea otter. And I, I don't, I hadn't, I hadn't ridden them yet at that point. And then I just started riding them and like the benefit of having, uh, that wheel paired with a steel bike. I don't know. It just, the ride is like the flex is in all the right places. And, um, also obviously if, 
as long as you're not smashing it super hard into rocks, like you're not really going to have to touch them. Um, so, yeah. and then for me, like going beyond that, so that was the union wheels that they, uh, that I bought first from them. And then when I was, uh, getting, building a bike up to have go off for the pink bike field test review, uh, Dustin had those new prototype wheels at the following sea otter, the, what ended up being the convergence rims. And I was like, man, it'd be really cool to like have those wheels on the test bike that's going to pink bike. And like, I hadn't ridden them yet, but I know that what, what they're doing is like, they're going, they're pushing it, you know? And, uh, Mm. so yeah, we got those wheels like just in time for the pink bike review bike. And then I've been riding those ever since and, and giving them feedback on those, on those rims. And I've just been like blown away with the first ride on them was up at, um, North star bike park, which is in Tahoe. It's very rocky. They had the EWS there and I was riding like no inserts. They were granted they're on downhill tires and it's just like, uh-huh. just crazy how you can like, for me, I was able to, I mean, I don't know. I know there's people that will still break carbon rims, but like I was on purpose, like hitting, hitting rocks and like hitting the rims. <laughs> and it was just kind of like a dull thud when you'd hit, hit the rim. And usually if you like rim out, like if you hit your rim really hard, especially on like an aluminum wheel or a stiffer carbon wheel, like too stiff vertically wheel, it's very harsh. And so this just added Mm. to like the ride of the bike um, for sure. But, you know, it doesn't, I have ridden the bike with aluminum wheels as well, and it still rides good. You just are going to have to do more maintenance and you're probably going to have to replace that rim after you smash it into rocks a bunch of times. So... Yeah, yeah, but definitely, you know, most of the customers that are uh, buying this bike, it is a quite high-end bike. So they're doing their dream builds and they're they're going to put whatever they want on. And hopefully some of them will get those wheels. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So you've got you've got a bike then, I guess, that you're, you're happy with, right? This uh, counter-rotating virtual pivot style, all the improvements to reduce unsprung mass, et cetera, et cetera. How do you go then from having a bike in prototype format that you like to creating a bike company? Because there's still two pretty different things. Eh? Yeah, for sure. Like making a prototype, you're just making it for you. So it, it can have quirks or like things that are weird um, and be fine. But making it for a customer, you, you now have to make a bunch of different sizes which luckily like, you know, it's not carbon mold, so I don't, I'm not paying for the tooling for that, but you still have to design every frame size and all the clearances and figure out what those frame sizes are going to be and do simulations on those structurally to make sure that like a different frame size isn't going to need a different tube set or a different gusset or whatever. And, uh, so that took quite a while, um, especially cause I went down the route of making size specific chain stays and I do it in a way since I can't really shift the pivot locations around to do that. Like most companies will just shift the basically, well, or you could look at it as they shift the bottom bracket location, but uh-huh. realistically uh, that's a great way of doing size specific chain stays from like a manufacturing perspective. Cause you can have 
just one back end that's the same on every bike, but you can have all these different chain stay links. You could also do like a flip chip thing. I think raw does that. Theirs is pretty clean. Um, but I think that creates some complication with the SRAM universal derailleur hanger, which, uh, which okay. I kind of knew that that was going to be the way going forwards. Um, so doing like a flip chip thing on the chain stays also that adds a lot of weight. Like when you start doing a flip chip thing on a steel frame or you do like sliding dropouts, you're just adding a lot of weight. And the whole point was to reduce unsprung weight. So, um, yeah, yeah. Creating all, all the tooling for the frame, like just adjust, like adjustable, um, chain stay links and, all different head tube positions to create the different reach and, and everything that took a while to figure out. Um, but more so what, what has taken a really long time was, was that I wanted to be able to bend the steel tubes, uh, to a higher quality, but also to a more extreme geometry to create more clearance. So for most custom frame builders, they'll use, well, I, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a few tubing benders out there. There's one that's like called the Cobra tubing bender. This guy makes some frame building tools and he makes a tubing bender. And that's what I used on the prototypes. A friend had one of those, um, but it has its limitations on what it can do. Uh, so I basically designed my own tubing bender from the ground up uh, that is a mandrel tubing bender. And so people that don't know what that is, basically when you're bending the tube, um, instead of it just being the tube getting bent, you have the tube getting bent with a support inside of it to keep it from distorting. And so like, that's Mm -hmm. the appropriate way I think to bend a tube and get, um, a really good quality of the bend and be able to do a tighter radius so that you can create more clearances. Um, and that, I think I just didn't understand how complicated that would be to, to design and build. And, um, I think I was like, Oh yeah, it'll take me like a couple of weeks and, and then we'll have, you know, my machinist will make the parts that I can't make by hand. And it was like at least two months of making this tool. And even after making it, then it was probably another three weeks of like having to dial it in because certain things you, I, I, I'd never made a tube bender before. I didn't understand the kind of forces going into it. I knew that the forces were high, but, um, yeah, there were lots of modifications that had to be done to get the tubing bender up and running. And so that's all super good. Now we're getting really good quality of of bends, um, and going from there, you know, sort also sourcing all the material, like making, placing the order for all the CNC parts. That's kind of nerve wracking when you're like handing over tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and that's the other thing too, is people probably don't know like how this is funded. Like I don't have any, I didn't go out and get like, I mean, I guess technically it's somebody else's money, but we, we basically refinanced our house to pull cash out because we couldn't, we couldn't figure out a good way to get the funding. Like I had tried to get funding through friends, uh, just 
through whatever means. And I couldn't figure out a way to come up with enough money to, to go to production. So, uh, luckily our house had appreciated enough, uh, that we could pull cash out. Um, but it still wasn't, it still wasn't enough technically. Like I knew it wasn't going to be enough. So even though I was kind of against, Originally, I was a very against having pre-orders for bike frames. I was like, okay, uh-huh. we're going to also do pre-orders because that will help with, you know, people pay 800 bucks up front and that helps yeah. go towards making the bike, the cost of making it. Cause it was really high. Um, and that is the other thing too, is like, there's that whole, the, the whole financial side of it that you have to figure out how you're going to pay for all this stuff. Cause it's not just like it's not small amount of money, even making, you know, 30 frames. It's not a small amount of money just to buy all the materials and to get, to get set up. And, uh, you know, I'm not even, I don't really pay for the workspace. Like luckily Bjorn is Bjorn and his dad, um, are still happy having me be there and like helping me, um, do this. Cause there's no way that I would have, if I had to buy all the tooling and stuff up front, and, uh, you know, the machines and have a space like this would be very different. Um, and it probably would take even longer than it's already taking. So, but yeah, getting it, getting it through to production has been interesting. Yeah. I, I, I ended up running into a big issue too. Um, when I was trying to make the SRAM universal derailleur hanger dropouts and I designed them uh, when I didn't, there was a moment where I didn't have access to FEA, uh, uh-huh. the simulation software. And that was like the one thing that I was designing these dropouts and wasn't able to virtually test them. And we ended up pulling the trigger and making these dropouts. Cause you just think, Oh, they look similar. They're going to be fine. And when I started testing them virtually, which happened after we had made them i was like these aren't gonna pass the test they aren't gonna pass what i want it to do and like for instance those dropouts are very expensive they're made here they're quite complex they have a lot of tolerances and yeah that was like five or six thousand dollars just gone in dropouts that i mean maybe i can use them on a lightweight cross-country bike or something if i ever make that but um for the intended use of the bike, they weren't going to, they weren't going to work. So had to start over and that set, set things back a little bit, redesigning dropouts, yeah. remaking all the dropouts and, uh, yeah, just running into issues, other, other things where like parts from certain manufacturers would come and they wouldn't be to spec. Um, and this is, this is all stuff made in the U S. Um, luckily my machinist here is super dialed. Um, Dave Mather of Mather Machining, which is like just up the road. Um, he used to make parts for RockShox uh, when they were here, like the very first boxer. Uh, you go in there and there's the boxer crowns. Like he made all those for RockShox when they were here, like in 97 or 98. So it's kind of crazy to think that the stuff that he made in that shop was like on World Cup overall and yeah. like world championship bikes back in the day. And, uh, yeah, he's really good. He's been a huge help. Um, and he's also kind of like helped me learn what is and isn't important and where, where can you loosen a tolerance and still have the part be, 
the way that you need it to be. Because I think at first when I designed mm-hmm. everything, that was the other thing too, is just learning about tolerancing of how do you, um, uh, what like dimensional limits do you put on something um, when it's being manufactured? Because at first I was like, oh, I just, oh, my buddy asked me, he works at, he works at Fox. He's a design engineer, Fox Racing Shocks. And he's like, so yeah, like what kind of tolerances do you have on this? And I'm like, oh, I just give them like the parts file and they just make it. And he's like, he's like, no, he's like, nope. you have to have it. <laughs> and I, like, that's just the thing you don't know until you know. And I didn't know, I didn't know that that was a thing and learning. So at first I would be like, oh my gosh, it has to be plus or minus 0.1 of a millimeter or something or like 0.01, sorry, of a millimeter, not 0.1. And people are like, yeah, that's not, we can't do that. Like, that's not realistic. Like, and so then you're like, okay, 0.02 of a millimeter. And you're like, but you can't just like <laughs> generally put a tolerance on every single thing. Cause there's a bunch of dimensions that aren't critical that can yeah, have a, it would cost a fortune. Yeah. And you don't, you don't need it to be as tight and that sounds bad, but there's certain things on a bike that areas where I feel like you have to be very tight with tolerances um, like bearing, bearing bores where bearings are pressed in, they need to be a very tight range, like plus mm-hmm. or minus 0.02 of a millimeter, which is like less than a thousandth of an inch each direction, um, yeah. for it to, for it to be like the way that you want it to be. And, um, it is crazy when you start like putting calipers and taking dimensions off of frames that exist out there and you're like whoa like they create a lot of space like around pivots and things like and by space i mean like they'll have like you know a i don't know it's supposed to be an eight millimeter bolt but it's actually undersized they're usually like seven point eight nine to like seven point nine five or something it varies and then they'll have like a eight 0.1 millimeter or like an 8.05 millimeter hole. And to me, I'm like that bolt like kind of fits loose, but obviously when you tighten everything down, it like cinches together, but that's a big part. A big reason why a lot of bikes creak is like they create way too much clearance. And then there's like movement between stuff. And obviously you can't have everything be ultra tight because it might be difficult to install you know, a, a pivot bolt when you're trying to feed it through, but you can have it be tighter than that if you have more control. So that was like one thing. And there's certain things that I've made and it's been too tight where you're like, okay, we actually need to run a precision reamer through this after to make it a little bit bigger because that's just not enough clearance, especially when you start to get into like anodizing, anodizing adds dimension to aluminum yeah you know it's a super small amount it could be around 0.01 of a millimeter or so per surface depending upon what you do and um you know powder coat too uh the distortion from welding um will also change well that'll mostly change like the shape of a hole and then you know that's the nice thing is i kind of create i'm not like obviously it'd be really nice to be able to just pay somebody else to make the bikes um, so that I could maybe focus on more of the business side of it. But Uh 
making every bike, I get to be that person. I get to be, you know, it kind of takes me back to the bike shop where I'm looking at stuff and I'm picking it apart and can this be better? And, and, uh, yeah, like luckily, uh, most of the decisions that I've made have, have not like backfired. Like we've, we've got the tolerances in a really good spot and they can always, I'm, I'm constantly refining and learning about where I can be tighter with the tolerances or looser and still have a really good quality of the bike and really good, um, accuracy of it. Cause again, it comes back, it needs to be as accurate as possible to, to ride the way that it's designed. So definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you, I mean, you mentioned the business side of it, which you, you have to move on to, I guess, like the engineering at some point has to stop and you have to focus on selling the things. A big part of that is, is the marketing side. And you've got an awesome project this year that was announced pretty recently, uh, which is going to massively help get the brand name and the bikes in front of more people. And so you're supporting Anna Newkirk and Abby Hoagie with their Beyond Racing team. And you've been creating some custom downhill bikes for them that they're going to be racing at the World Cups and beyond this season. Tell us a little bit about how that came together and how it's going so far, because it's a it's an awesome project. Yeah, that um, I'm super stoked to be to be honest, but that, uh, I didn't think that I would be able to get a bike like out into the, into the world in that way, like be able to support a world cup, a UCI world cup team. Um, and I basically, so I'll guess I'll rewind back just a little bit to, um, my wife, she started her own sports bra company um, uh-huh. as like a side project, like she actually works at Giro, um, cycling, doing their apparel. Um, but she also started this sports bra company called loom six. And in, in the long term, I was like, I really want to have a contra loom six team someday. That's all these women. Like I remember the Luna chicks, like back in the day was Santa Cruz bicycles and like Luna bars or whatever. Um, and that had a huge presence. And I was like, I feel like, I feel like women are, um, not as supported. I mean, I, I don't know the actual, uh, like financial, uh, backstory or like background. Um, but I think women are not as supported in the sport. And so, Uh um, I felt like there was more of an opportunity there for me to, to help somebody. And watching them, uh, Anna and Abby, um, progress, like seeing the, them race the world cups and they started their own team. Um, and they're like, they're on, they're both on the up, like, you know, and I think they're on the verge of some, of some really great results. And, um, I think that what they're doing is cool. It kind I kind of, uh, vibe with that. Cause like I was a privateer trying to make it work. Um, so yeah, out of the blue, I basically, I think I sent them an email and I remember just being like overconfident and just being like, yeah, I, I, I can like basically just being like, yeah, I, I make these bikes and you know, it, it could, it could help you 
you know, it's going to be an amazing bike that could help you. Like I hadn't even created this bike yet. And I'm basically just selling it to them. Like I can, I can make this bike that will help you in the world cup. And, and, uh, I'd be more than happy to like, basically just throwing it out there. And I also was like, you know, I can't other than providing bikes, like I won't be able to provide like financial support, but I do have a lot of connections in the industry and I could help find support. Um, and I just didn't hear anything. Like I sent that email, I think it was an email and I, and I didn't hear anything. It was like a week or two. And I reached out to Elliot Jackson. Um, I, I'm sure you obviously know Elliot and he, mm-hmm. uh, started grow cycling and that was one of their sponsors or supporters on their Jersey was grow cycling. And so I like messaged him or texted him and was like, Hey, you know, I sent them this thing and I haven't heard back, like what's going on. And he's like, I think he said something like just, Oh yeah, yeah. No, they know they're going to get back to you. And I was just like, okay, whatever. Like I, I didn't think anything was going to happen. And then they were like, yeah, we're like super interested, but like, we got to wait and see what's happening with our existing sponsors and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, whatever. They're probably going to, you know, get money from somebody and that'll be the way that they go. And, um, yeah, then it just ended up being there. Like, yeah, let's like, let's have the conversation and see what, see what's going to happen. And, um, a huge part of it happening was, uh, my wife's connection at Giro and my connection at Giro as well, because she's been working there for like eight years. Um, and we knew all the marketing people there, the sports marketing, uh, Jim, Jim Heaney and Dane Zafke, um, are, you know, friends and people that we see regularly. And I was like, I'm going to tell them about these girls and see if they're willing to support it. Cause I think it'd be awesome to have like Giro and Contra and whatever. I feel like it would really mm-hmm. fit with their brand. So I had a conversation with them and they seemed super into it, but I didn't know where that would go. And, uh, luckily it went the right direction where they ended up making an offer that the girls were willing to, to take. And, um, it allowed for me to be able to just be the one providing frames, which is a huge, it's a huge expense for me to create frames. And even just, even just the cost of one frame is a lot, but like, you know, they could probably get bikes from whoever if they, I mean, maybe not whoever, but they have good results. They have good exposure. And, uh, I was just super stoked that they were willing to take a huge chance on, me making a bike for them, you know, a bike that didn't even exist, hadn't been designed and me just being like, yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. And it's going to help you go faster. <laughs> and so when, when they did push go, it was like, it was a bit nerve wracking. Cause you know, I'm trying to make the production bikes and then I'm like in the background, Oh, I have to completely design this downhill bike and figure out how I'm going to make it. And it's not just the same. It's not the downhill bike that I ended up making is not just the trail bike with like a different shock or whatever Uh it, it does use all of the same exact linkages. That was something that I wanted to try to do because the cost of making those parts over again is quite expensive. Um, but yeah, it basically repositions everything and, and creates the kinematics. Like it's 98% of the performance of what I would make if I just had it, if I had just an open book and like could make whatever, 
And so I was, and I didn't know that I could do that until I explored it for a very long time and linkage to figure out how to do it. But yeah, it's, it's been awesome. Um, creating that bike. That's also something that I wanted to make. It just kind of sped up the process of, I do want to make a downhill bike at some point. I know that that's not what downhill bikes aren't what sell, but it's where it's what I did. It's what I raced and I want to have a downhill bike to ride. And I think the platform, like the suspension design is very well suited to a downhill bike. So yeah, yeah, it just sped up the process and I can't wait till I can make one, get some time to make one for myself too. You know, that'll be amazing. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Making the first bikes and uh, having to let someone else have them is, it must be challenging. How, how are Anna and Abby getting on on the bikes? What's the feedback been like? Yeah. So that was definitely nerve wracking at first. I was just creating the bike based off of their feedback, you know, like other bikes that they had ridden and, uh, I just had to kind of guess, you know, they're both a similar height. I think they're around five, five or five, six, um, similar weights between the two. So that really helped because I didn't have to be making like a one really big bike and one really small bike. Like they're both riding the same size bike. Um, so, but it, but also like, I know that, you know, the kinematics work well on my trail bike. I didn't know that with the downhill bike, I, I, I thought that it should have done all my homework and uh yeah they got on the bike the first day they were on the bike it was super muddy um we did downhill shuttle laps and so they actually that's the other thing too is they don't they're not they don't actually they're american but they don't they both live in europe which is quite which Uh is probably a really good setup for the world cups but so they actually committed to flying out here Um, and spending quite a bit of time out here. So they flew out in, I think it was the beginning of March and started testing the downhill bike, but we had horrendous weather. So the first ride was in the mud, uh, pouring rain. And within two runs, they were like, I'm already comfortable on the bike. Like I'm already like already feel comfortable. And they're like, that says a lot. And I'm like, I don't know. Are they just like saying that because they want, you know, they want to, say that this is the right decision or they want to make me feel better Mm. or whatever. And very quickly it was clear that they were comfortable on the bike, that they were adapting to the bike very quickly and going fast, like right away. And, um, so for me that was really rewarding. And then even more rewarding than that is that they have ridden the bike a whole bunch more. And I keep asking them, I'm like, okay, well we have to make you a second. We're making, part of the deal is I'm making them, they're each going to have two downhill bikes and a trail bike and two downhill bikes, because obviously like if something goes wrong, like I've, I do all my homework, but if something goes wrong, you got to have a backup. Um, and also yeah. cause the racing now is so condensed, like having two bikes at the races is much better than one. So if, if something does go wrong, even if something goes wrong with a component, of their bike and they can't fix it in time. They can just grab a spare bike. Uh, cause I don't think they had that with their prior sponsor. They were riding on one-off bikes and if something went wrong, that was all they had. Um, uh-huh. so yeah, they, they've ridden them more. Um, they went and did their first downhill race on them, uh, up at Port Angeles, which is, uh, in Washington. 
And I, that was also really nerve wracking because I'm like, I don't know, they've been riding them, but like, what's it going to be like when they go and race them? Is it going to be good? And uh, it was good. Anna ended up winning the race there by like mm-hmm. almost nine seconds um, in the pro women's field. And Abby uh, ended up getting on the podium in fifth. So I know it's not a World Cup or anything, but that's their first race experience is both being on the podium and uh, Anna winning the race by a lot (laughs) was like, I was like, yeah, that's great. And then since then, I've asked them too. I've been like, so for the next bikes, because I'm going to have to make those um, before the World Cup in June, I'm like, what is there anything that you want to change? And they're like thinking about it. They're like, they're like, no, like the bike is super good. Like we're not. And usually you'd think they'd be like, oh, I want five millimeter longer reach. or I want a slacker head angle or I want yeah, a different yeah. kinematic or I want a different chain stay length or whatever. And they're just like, no, we just want the same bike. And this is like, I, I which makes me feel good because I definitely spent a lot of time pouring over every detail to try to make it the best that I possibly could for them. I basically built the bike for them. And then, um, yeah, the benefit is, is that I'll also get to ride one eventually when I make a bigger one. So, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. A good start, man. That's good to hear. I'm looking forward to seeing how they go this season because they're exciting races anyway, but it's cool to see them on something a bit different. So yeah, congratulations Thank on, you. on pulling that together. <laughs> We should uh, we should start wrapping up. We've got our final four questions that we've asked most people. Yeah. Um, the first one of those: if our listeners had 150 pounds, which is about 185 US dollars, to improve their performance on a bike, what would you personally recommend they go and spend it on? Well, if they have to spend it on like a component or something, well, there's a few different things. <sighs> That's hard. Um, <laughs> I mean. Suspension service is a good one. <laughs> if if yeah, your true. if your fork or shock is tired, you may maybe most people might not realize it, but like a fresh fork service is pretty noticeable. Um, yeah. The other thing that improves your performance that you could spend it on is just having fun. So like taking that 150 pounds and going on a road trip with friends to go ride a new riding spot <laughs> or like go do a nice. lift access day. So yeah, I would say either if you got to spend it on some sort of component, get your suspension serviced or at least like the fork. Cause that's probably going to be the most noticeable. Um, or go on a trip, a, sh- a small trip. Like obviously you can't afford to yeah. go somewhere super fancy, but you can go ride with your friends. Cause having f- having fun and riding new spots is probably, I think one of the best ways to improve your performance on a bike is riding somewhere new. So (laughs) yeah, I like that. Good stuff. All right. Second one. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Mm, Probably to, uh, just be <laughs> be more of a professional when you're racing uh, to, on the marketing, <laughs> like focus on the relationships that you could make with sponsors, because I think I was just so focused on trying to achieve a certain result or get faster that I 
I was not creating the best relationships with sponsors, you know, and um, I probably could have gotten, maybe I would have gotten farther in racing if I was able to balance that a bit more. Um, but also, you know, the other thing that would have been really cool is like to have started playing around with this stuff when I was younger, because it would have been cool to, I mean, I, I I don't know if I would have been able to make a bike when I was younger necessarily, but it would have been cool to have started playing around with welding, like learning how to do that, um, or learning how to machine stuff a little better. So I guess those would be the, the two if I, if, if only one thing, it would be, um, probably the relationships with sponsors. <laughs> Just, yeah. Yeah. It's something you learn as you get older, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. Good, good advice. All right. Next one. If you could have a coaching session from anyone past or present, who would it be? And what would you want to learn from them? Uh, it would probably be Nico Valio and yeah. Um, yeah, I would, I don't know. I mean, he knows so much, <laughs> like he's won everything. Um, it would probably be, well, that's, I guess that's tough, you know? Cause the other thing is like, you, you think about Sam Hill and cornering, you know, like that's such a big part of his thing. Nico, it's like yeah. everything. Like he's, he's <laughs> yeah. good at everything. So I don't know. It's hard to be like, teach me how to be good at everything. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe we would change it to Sam Hill then and just have a cornering lesson from him. <laughs> Cause I feel like that would be pretty fun. Yeah, both would <laughs> both be good days yeah. for sure. Yeah. Nice one. All right. Last one. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Drink coffee. <laughs> no, okay. I mean, so I mean, you no, going. probably drinking water, to be honest, would be something that would benefit me. But also, if you I don't do it every day, I wish I could do it every day is ride my bike because <laughs> because, uh -huh. yeah, it's it's so easy to get wrapped up just, um, you know, making bike frames or designing things. Um, and when I get out on my bike, that's that's when I'm happiest for sure. It's it's definitely. Uh, yeah, but drinking water is probably the best thing you could do <laughs> all right yeah. good stuff if uh well before we wrap up you should just give us a bit of a summary of where where the con because it's the contra mc yeah. right that's the name yeah. of the bike just give us like an overall summary of it like travel you know yeah. some of the uh, headline figures and stuff so people know what it is we've been covering because we haven't gone into the detail of the bike particularly yeah so the, the bike that I'm selling currently is called the Contra MC, which kind of stands for magic carpet. Cause that's how it, I feel like it rides. Um, which is funny cause there's a trail here called magic carpet and it's, it's not really that great of a trail and I didn't name it after the trail, but, uh, yeah, basically <laughs> the bike is kind of a, it's, it's definitely a longer travel enduro bike. So the travel varies. Uh, on the smallest frame size, it's actually 160. On the biggest frame size, it's 166 millimeters of travel. Okay. 170 millimeter fork, pretty slack head angle, like 63 and a half degrees, steep seat tube angle. It's basically a climbable downhill bike. Um, the bike pedals really efficiently, which is something that maybe people wouldn't think but most people that get on the bike and go and climb it they're like 
even though it's quite a heavy bike because it's made out of steel and uh you know i didn't push the limits with with tubing or whatever it uh it climbs extremely well so it's it's kind of the bike where you could you can climb up anything you can do a big day on it but it's happiest when it's steep and rough and fast and uh that the rougher and steeper and faster it gets the better it it works so that's kind of the direction i went with that bike um and uh it does actually still jump quite good too that was something that has the feedback that i've gotten is the bike jumps really well and that's something that maybe isn't usually a characteristic of a high pivot bike with a lot of uh-huh. travel um so yeah i would say if you if you want a bike that you could go and you could actually like you could take this bike and go and ride whistler bike park in it like no problem um and climb it you know huge amounts of elevation yeah it does weigh more but so that's kind of the intended use of it you could also go out and race enduros on it it's not the lightest bike i wouldn't ride it on a flatter enduro like it's not going to be fun on something Uh where you need to just be pumping and sprinting and carrying speed but if you like going fast, you like riding steep stuff, you like hitting big jumps or you don't have to hit big jumps, but (laughs) if you do, it'll do all that. It'll handle all that. And it'll, um, I think it does it extremely well, but you know, I'm obviously biased. Um, but yeah. And then I, I do want to eventually sell the downhill bike once we've tested it a bit more. I think that that is probably the next thing that would be available, uh, would be, making that available to whoever wants to buy it because it does use all the same linkages so it's it's basically it uses entirely different jig but um yeah yeah. so right now big big travel bikes i would like to make a short travel someday that's definitely one of the next things on the list too so cool and what's the website for the bike yeah it's just contrabikes.com yeah c-o-n-t-r-a yeah yeah perfect and same on instagram yeah, it's at Contra Bikes, but there's literally, I don't, awesome. I'm not good at social media. Uh, maybe I, I should care more about that, but yeah, there's literally like <laughs> six or seven posts over the last like two years. So people think I'm probably don't exist, um, but I'm just focused on other things and I will, I think, uh, I will in the future want to create some more content for people because people do want to see like how these frames are made and, uh, yeah you know see uh i'd love to do more stuff with uh the beyond racing team the anna newkirk and and uh abby hoagie and create some more videos and stuff for people to watch i think that'd be cool yeah definitely man well i'll stick links to those in the show notes people can find them um yeah i'm looking forward to seeing how it goes hopefully seeing some contra bikes over here in the uk looking forward to seeing how anna and abby get on on the world cup circuit but yeah thanks for your time it's been super interesting and uh, i wish you all the best of thanks luck. yeah have it thanks for having me on <laughs> it was super fun all right that's it for this episode with evan i really hope you've enjoyed it a massive thanks to we are one composites for supporting the podcast this month 
to get a very generous 15% off their wheels, rims, and to package bar and stem for the duration of May, head over to wearonecomposites.com and use the code DOWNTIMEMAY2023. That's DOWNTIMEMAY2023, all one word with a capital D and a capital M. You'll find that code in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. And don't forget, you need to enter it at the very final stage of the checkout process in order for it to work. That's the confirm order page at weareonecomposites.com. If you want to be in with a chance of winning one of three pairs of Magira MT7 Pros, then you need to fill out my 2023 listener survey by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash survey before the 8th of June. Also, don't forget, if you want to help support the podcast, then the best way to do that is by heading over to patreon.com forward slash downtimepodcast and setting up a regular donation. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I know times are tough for a lot of people at the moment, so if it doesn't work for you, then no worries. But if you are able to support, then it's very much appreciated. If Patreon doesn't work out for you, then have a think about other ways that you can help, like telling your friends about the show, sharing the episodes on your social media, and leaving a review in Apple Podcasts or commenting on the episodes in Spotify. We also have t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hoodies over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. All right, we've got loads more coming up, so make sure you're following the podcast by hitting that button in your podcast app now or by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can also get a little bit of extra downtime by signing up to the newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. That's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. <laughs>